Welcome to Kachika, a podcast that takes you behind the scenes at the Dundas Center for the Performing Arts. Kachika is a production of Ringplay Productions. In this episode, Philip A. Burroughs talks with Nicolette Bethel for a slightly different Kachika. Well, the tables are kind of turned because in episode six, the episode called A Tale of Two Seasons, Nicolette Bethel interviewed Philip Burroughs. So yeah. <laughs> we're turning it around a little bit. So let's start at the beginning. A very nice place to start. What was your first experience in theater? It was at Queens College. I was asked to play the Virgin Mary in a Christmas pageant. Oh, Lord. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. I played the Virgin Mary and my mother made me, my mother, my grandmother, that set of the people, they made me a blue gown, you know, those things that robe and headdress and all of that. This was primary school? This was primary school. Okay. And yeah, this was primary school. And I played Mary. I don't think I had any lines. I think there was a narrator and all I had to do was walk along with Joseph. I don't think they made me pregnant. I probably was about six or seven. The first public performance, I guess, would have been Fiddler on the Roof, where I had, I think, I counted, I think I had five or six lines because I played one of the daughters. My first memory of hearing about you was my brother Derek mentions to us that Clement's daughter, Nicolette, writes books. (laughs) And you must have been, I don't know how old at that time, but he was like, this is something else. This little girl writes books. And that's really the first sort of memory of hearing about you. And that was from him. So you were writing from how old? I was writing for as long as I can really remember myself. I was writing from, I don't remember a time when I couldn't read. And I think as soon as I learned how to read, I started to make up stories. And then as soon as I learned how to write, I started to write down stories. So I, let's say from about the age of six or seven and what, These books that Derek would have been talking about was my father had somehow in our in my brother and my room. We went into the cupboard and there was this big, huge sketch pad, one of those big easel sized sketch pads with good, thick paper. And I didn't ask anybody. It was in my room. So I tore out um, the paper and then I would fold it up into sixteenths and then I would staple that. And then I would cut the pages and then that, then I would have a blank book and then I'd have to write a story. Yeah, so you were a nerd from back then. <laughs> <laughs> so then QC, that's high school now. You're a fiddle on the roof. And um, yes. how many QC productions do you end up doing? Because I know we, we discussed well, fiddle, a little okay. bit about this with Greg in, in, the, in his yes. episode. Yes. So that would have been in the era of Phil mm-hmm. Cash. And um, the first musical that I remember him doing was Oliver which I was not in, but I was so amazed at the fact that people in my class were in the lead and they were that good that I thought, oh, I have to be in these musicals. So the next year I went and I tried out for the musical. The next musical was Oklahoma. um, And I got a part in Oklahoma. It wasn't a speaking part, but it was a dancing part. There was a moment where I can't remember who my partner was. Somebody else in me had to come out and do a little dance Um, and then go off stage and so that was pretty good because we had a good five minutes on stage and we were in the chorus and then there was the guys and dolls the famous guys and dolls where I was just in the opening and the closing Um, and then Fiddler on the Roof where I got lines (laughs) 
So that's high school. Now, what is the next theatrical thing that you do? Okay, so I skipped over. I went to um, the United World College of the Pacific in Vancouver Island. And the theater that was being done there just did not speak to me. So I did not get involved in theater at that time. Other than performing on stage in what later became One World, which is a big variety show that the Pearson community puts on for the wider community at that time. But back in those days, it was called Meet Pearson College, and it used to be held actually on Pearson College campus. And when you and I were there later and we'd returned 16 to 20 years later, it had become much bigger and it had moved to Victoria and it was called One World. But in terms of actual acting. I think my next experience was at the University of Toronto. I was taking a French class with a conversational French class with this extremely glamorous and confident French woman. And every year she put on a French play and she would do classics, Molière. And she said that it was a prerequisite for everybody in her conversation class to be involved in her plays. And so she had auditions and people got their parts. And she kind of liked what I did, but as far as she was concerned, I was much too short to be on stage. So I had to be backstage. So she told me that I had to be her regisseuse, which means stage manager. And that was where I got my first taste of stage management. And I found that I absolutely loved it. I did it twice for her. I did it in that French class. And then the next year, I had to go back and run her her production again. You come back home. What's the next involvement? I've been writing and I wanted to write stuff. But I wanted to write stuff that would be relevant for the Bahamian people. And in university, I was studying English at the time. And I was reading um, a, very, uh, a group of um, African writers. And one of them is the African writer Ngugi Wationgo from Kenya. And... He, ha- he, he writes a lot of stuff on decolonizing the mind and so on and so forth. And his trajectory, he starts off as a novelist and then he, writing in English. And then he goes, my people are not reading in English. So now I'm going to write in Kikuyu. And so from that moment on, he's written all of his books in Kikuyu and then, had to, and then translated them into English. And then he said, my people don't read. So now I'm only going to write plays. And when he said that, when I read that, I thought, oh, wow, I'm here writing novels and short stories. And, you know, maybe there's some kind of affinity between people in the Caribbean and people in Africa. And maybe I should write plays. So I decided to take a short story that I had been working on and turn it into a play. And I came home and I talked to my father and I said that this is what I was doing. And he said, well... You can't just do that in a vacuum. You need to be involved in the theater. I'm going to call Winston and he'll get you involved in the theater. So he called Winston, who was his closest friend, the late Winston Saunders. And Winston, whom I called Uncle Winston, said, well, no problem. I'll put her in touch with Philip. Philip is running a workshop this summer and she can join Philip's workshop. So that is how I got involved. I was catapulted into an acting workshop, which is not what my intention was in the least. Am I not correct that before you joined the workshop, you did the green country? Oh, yes, you're totally correct. 
for a period of time in the early 80s, after I left Pearson College, before I went to university, I was deeply involved in Grace Gospel Chapel, which is now Grace Community Church. And at that time, there was a really active youth group. And um, we were there at the time that the youth group was really getting a lot of inspiration from Tinkle Hannah and Sarge Hannah. And Tinkle determined that instead of doing a traditional cantata every Christmas, he, we were going to produce an original-ish kind of play that we came up with. I mean, it probably was a cantata, but he didn't call it a cantata. So what Tinkle did was he selected the music and then we, he sat down with me and he said, okay, so this is the story that I think that we could have. These, we have these characters and they're going on this journey and blah, blah, blah. And the characters were all taken from um, the New Testament and they were like poor in spirit, pure in heart, all of the, all of the virtues. And um, they were on a journey. It was kind of like a pilgrim's progress kind of idea. And they were on a journey to the green country. And so Tinkle tells me the story and I put it into words. I write, I put the words in the characters and we develop the plot and he provides music and we do a musical. We did that one year and then I come back home my first year back from university and he says, we're doing a sequel to The Green Country and it's called Once Upon a Star and it's for Christmas and this is the story. And in this one, we introduce a villain and the villain has a sidekick. Mm -hmm. And <laughs> the villain is played by Ricardo Trico, and I am his sidekick. Igor. Yes, and I was playing Igor. And that was fun because it was a total caricature. I was playing the humpback, and I would go around and I'd go, I basically had two lines Yes, master. <laughs> and a laugh. And I think that you actually I saw did. that. I got to see it because I was invited to Ronnie Butler Jr. was the director. Right. And Ronnie at that time was a student of mine. I was doing a workshop and he was one of my students. And he said to me, um, would you please come by the church one night and watch our rehearsal? And so I came by and um, I watched the rehearsal and I gave Ronnie some notes and then when the production actually went up, I came to see it. So, yes, that's how I got to see that production. So that was a different kind of thing. I really I was not ever really the kind of person who wanted to go on stage. When I was in high school, I wanted to go on stage. I was dying to go on stage. I wanted to play. I wanted them to do Oliver again. And I really wanted to play the Artful Dodger. Right. But that obviously was not in the cards for me. And by the or any I female at that time. To, Right. It's well, you know, but by the time I got to adulthood, I had decided that I was much happier behind the scenes. And part of this had to do with my my job in the French in St. Michael's French Theater um, doing stage management, because I that was like a drug. Mm. You know, people don't know what stage managers do, but stage managers control the whole production. And so much once the director has stepped away from the from the play and the director is in a position where they're just sitting back and watching the fruits of their labor, the stage manager is running the show behind the scenes. And I don't know what it was that touched in me. Maybe it was an outlet for the obsessive compulsive disorder that I did not know that I had at the time. Maybe I like bossing people around. I don't know. But I really, really liked maybe it was keeping everything running and keeping track of everything. It's a it's a lot of details that you have to keep in mind as a stage manager. 
but it's also that you know what the stage manager says backstage goes I was not from that point in time all that interested in going on stage being in front of the curtain but playing Igor was just playing it wasn't like it wasn't work it was just it was just total fun and so I really enjoyed that part that's probably the part that I enjoy playing the absolute most anytime I've been on stage so the next thing is the workshop the next thing is the workshop which was absolute hell <laughs> for me because because we had to we had to do scenes and monologues and I just had the most awful I, so for anybody who does not know how Philip works there's this I don't know what it is, this thing that he does. And when he assigns scenes and workshops, you know, sometimes sometimes you assign them just because you had people that you had to occupy. But other times it seemed to me that you would pick these things that were just so emotionally um, demanding on the individual. And I found that whatever you gave me in that workshop, I just was like, I I'm not going there. And I remember you pulled me aside and you gave me this scenario. We were even, we were just doing we were doing an exercise at this point and you gave me a scenario and I was like my father was ill at the time and you were like you know use it. There was somebody who had a yeah, exactly, use it. And I was like what kind of what kind of person is this? <laughs> Um, yeah. So, so yeah. So I was in the workshop. Well, I left the workshop before it came to the end because I got a job. And so I had to, I could not get to the workshop from the job in time. And it was between the job and the workshop. So I stopped going to the workshop. But that Christmas, I get a phone, a phone call from you. And you said, look, I'm looking for a stage manager. I have this play that's coming up and I'm looking for a stage manager. So I need you to come out um, to a reading that I'm having. And so I get to the Dundas and there's a circle of chairs set up on the Dundas stage, which was fairly dark. We just had the work lights on. There were no lights on the stage. And it was a it was a whole pile of it was a whole pile of chairs. It looked like about 24 chairs. And then there were all these people who came in and sat in the circle around and Phillips on one side and I'm sitting on the other side taking notes because I'm going to be the stage manager. And then Philip hands me this script and he says, look, we don't have enough people here. I don't know who's going to play this, but for the time being, just read this character. And the play that we were reading is a play by Lanford Wilson called Rhymers of Eldritch. And as we started to read this play, I could feel all the little neurons in my head going clink, 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 because this was, I, I, I realized this was a work of genius. It's a play that is totally deconstructed. And it starts off with, it, it, it just keeps telling the story, but it tells the story in bits and pieces. So it's like he wrote the whole play and then he went back with scissors and he cut it up and he cut out little lines and he, peppered them all over the script and you see little bits and pieces and as the play goes on you get this picture of this moment in this small town and the whole thing is is the whole village it's the whole town so there are all these different characters doing all these different things and the character that philip gives me to read is like the town's <laughs> slut and 
I just read the part and I'm like, yeah, I'm going to be the stage manager. And so we get to the end and I'm sitting there going, wow, what a play in my head. And then you lean over to me and you just go really softly. Well, I guess, you know, you got the part. At which point I like, I don't think I fell off the chair, but that was like in my mind. I, I was like, what the fuck <laughs> have I got myself into? <sighs> so, right. So that was the Rhymes of Eldritch. And that was the, that was really the first done this like season yeah that was the first part of any substance that i had ever had and so as we as we talked about in our in the last episode with david you and he that was like both of you sort of made your done this season debut in that play and then you both turned around and ended up in brighton beach memoirs yes that's right and you and elaine pater were sisters yeah, we were sisters, and we um, that was a, that was a really that was a really good cast, yes. I thought, um, and it was a solid play, and it was fun because weird things affect me when I'm on stage, right? And this one, you had a two story. Yeah, I was set. just thinking about that. That was one of the times, and we really had like an upstairs and a downstairs, and the ba- the two yeah. bedrooms were upstairs. Well, we're upstairs. I spent like a lot of I spent a lot of time on stage upstairs reading in my bedroom which was kind of normal for me you're listening to kachika a podcast that takes you behind the scenes at the dundas center for the performing arts let's move on to power cut i mean just talk about that just talk about that from the standpoint of writing it and there's a whole there's a whole series of we, we you you mentioned a little of it in a couple of other episodes, but there's a whole series of things of you um, getting it done and being able to get it done because you were at a job where you could sit at the desk and had nothing else to do. So yeah, so basically what happened was I was I was a youth officer and things were seasonal in the ministry. So the thing about working for government that I had learned was that in in that particular ministry there were there were times when we would be really really busy but then there would be times when because you were a civil servant and people were paying you to be in the office you had to be in the office even though there was not really all that much to do and as a trainee youth officer i was at the bottom of the chain so i got i i did jobs when they were assigned to me and i had a couple of responsibilities but as i say they were seasonal so that meant that there was a lot of time on my hand. I had a lot of time when there really wasn't that much to do. And I'm not very good at not being occupied. So we had a computer room. There were, there was, this was the first place that I actually worked on computers. And um, we had a computer room and I would just go into the computer room because nobody else was using it for anything else. I was using the computers to, to, to work on a number of pamphlets and things like that, because that was my job. My job was sort of like the creation of the publications that the Ministry of Youth put out. Um, But when they had been, when each publication had been completed, then there was a process by which they had to be sent up the chain of command to get all the different sign-offs and approvals. And it would be in those dead times while I was waiting for the sign-offs and approvals to come back that I would sit down at the computer and I would write. And at this point, my father had died. And I think I was writing this. It was a really um, vulnerable. I don't know. It was a, it was a troubled time in my life. 
and I was working through a bunch of stuff and I wrote this play this play came to me and I was like okay I want to write about I was I was really angry I think in a lot of different things and I was thinking well I just want to write about what women have to put up with now how am I going to do that I thought okay well let's get three women and let's put them somewhere where they can't get away from each other and when they talk to each other then we'll learn all about what women have to put up with and so I couldn't figure out where I would put them. You know, these kinds of plays are called elevator plays. I, sent, I learned later. And I, the first thing I did think was let them be in an elevator. And then I thought, no, I can't write that. I don't know. They can't move. If they're stuck in an elevator, they're just all going to be standing there. I don't know what to do with them. So then I thought, I know. They're going to all be stuck in a lady's bathroom. And then I had to figure out why they couldn't leave because if you're stuck in a bathroom how do you get stuck in a bathroom you walk into a bathroom you use it you go back out so i thought okay it's a hotel bathroom it is during the woman exhibition which was a big thing that happened in the 1980s um it was a big trade fair show that happened over a weekend um over on paradise island so it'll be a fancy hotel bathroom during the woman exhibition and there's a storm and there's a power cut in the hotel. And if there's a power cut in the hotel, that means the generators have failed and it's going to take them some time to get everything up and running. And in that time, these women are going to have to talk to each other. And that was the premise. And then I had to create three characters and I wrote the play and I wrote it um, at the ministry. And then I looked at it and I revised it at the ministry. And I revised it again. And then I thought, ah, this is finished. <laughs> and then I took it to my uncle Winston and I gave it to him. I said, can you read this and tell me if it's, if it's worth putting on? And he says, okay. And he takes it from me and then I hear nothing at all. And months go by, a couple months go by. And then I called, I got my courage up and I said to uncle Winston, okay, so what did you think of the play? He said, oh, I gave it to Philip to read. I was like, Oh, okay. And it was a lot easier for me to call my Uncle Winston than it was for me to call Philip Burroughs because Philip Burroughs was a very scary character. And so I didn't say anything else. And then a little bit later, I called Uncle Winston and I said, um, d d is Philip finished reading the play yet? And Uncle Winston said, I think you should ask Philip that. So I don't know if I called you or whatever, or if he called you or whatever. And then I get this message. Somehow I get this thing where I was told to come and visit you and you would talk to me about the play. And that was when, this is, remember, I'd already written it three times. This is when you go, okay, it's, there's some, you got something here, but I can only see one character. You need to go off and write it again. I can't, I can only see one character. So I go off and I rewrite it again and I bring it back to you again and you go, okay, I can see two characters, but I still can't see this third character. Let's have a reading and then let's get some feedback and then you have to write it again. So we do that. We go, we have a reading and I seem to remember that in this reading, Derek was there for some reason. Your brother Derek was there and Bonnie Byfield and I guess Cookie might have been there. I can't remember who else was in the reading, but we did the reading. Everybody sat around and read the play and then got feedback. 
And then you said, okay, so you need to write it again. And I wrote it for the fifth time. And then I gave it back to you and you said, okay, now let's cast the play. And so we cast the play. So Cookie was Glory, the woman whose keys have disappeared. Lynn Lowe was Darlene, the angry woman. And then we could not find somebody to play Tanya, the young woman. And you said to me, I guess you'll have to play Tanya. And, and you so did. Again, <laughs> what, yes, once again, I had to go on stage. Much to my disappointment, I was like, I, but I really want to see this play. I want to watch the play. I don't want to be in the play. But it was okay. It worked out okay. Yep. Tanya's actually a little crazy eventually. And what, what surprised me about the production was I had no idea when I was writing this play. I'm a little bit self, more self-aware now. But I had no idea how much comedy there was in the mm-hmm. play. I did not know how annoying, but how amusing Tanya's character was. I thought it was all deadly serious. And what amazed me was when people started to laugh. And when people got so hooked on this character, and at the end she starts to, she, she, she goes into this, this breakdown. She, she has a, a, a psychotic break. During the time of Power Cut, you are teaching at St. Anne's, right? Yes. By that time, I had... So just to give you some idea of how long it took for this play to get produced, I wrote it at the Ministry of Youth Sports and Culture. I mean, sorry, the Youth Sports and Community Affairs. That was the first incarnation. And then I got sick of working for the government because years had passed and nothing really was changing. And so I left. I left my job as the trainee youth officer and I went to work for St. Anne's High School. And um, that was fun because St. Anne's was very much into drama. And was, you know, it had Sammy Bethel and Jane Poveromo. And there was an active drama group. And there was a lot of, there was a lot of things happening. So I had gone to St. Anne's. I'd met a, a remarkable group of people. Um, some of them, including Patrice Francis, Arian Roll, Contanza Adderley, Desmond McIntosh. Those were all the people in that first year that I met. There were others as well. But these were all the people that would go on to be in, to be involved in the performing arts one way or the other. From St. Anne's, my next move is to Cambridge. Right. University. So let's talk about theater at Cambridge. So I get to Cambridge and by accident or by, I don't even know, by, by divine intervention, because I knew nothing about the colleges in Cambridge. So when you apply to Cambridge University, you get accepted to become a member of the university, but you cannot attend unless you get selected by one of the colleges to be um, a member of the college. And I applied to, I don't remember the other colleges I applied to, but I was accepted at Corpus Christi College. And I did not know at the time that Corpus Christi was the, the college in Cambridge that Christopher Marlowe went to. Christopher Marlowe, who was um, Shakespeare's contemporary, and he was supposed to be a spy and all kinds of other things. And he's a playwright in his own right. He's one of the Elizabethan playwrights. But I end up at Corpus, and every year, Corpus itself does a Marlowe play every single year. I was at the graduate branch of Corpus, and we were a little bit more radical. So there would be the the Marlowe play every year. And then we had... um, there were a group of people at 
Leckhampton, which is the graduate campus of Corpus Christi, that put on a summer play as well. And there was a couple who went by the name of Chubb, Stephen and Catherine. And Catherine was a director and Stephen was a writer. And Stephen wrote a play, um, or Stephen was an actor, I should say. And he decided he was going to do um, Christopher Marlowe's Dr. Faustus. And he was going to play Faustus. And Catherine decided that she was going to write a play about Marlowe himself called Kit. And they directed, they put both of these plays up. And at that point, I was, I said, look, I've done stage managing. Would you like me to work with you? And they were like, absolutely, yes. And what I loved about it was it was an outdoor production. We did it. Um, I, I've, I like theaters. I like proscenium arch theaters, but I get really excited by different spaces. And so this was right up my alley. It was a lot of fun. I have no idea what the audience thought of it, um, but it was it was a lot of fun. So that was my work in Cambridge. So during your time at Cambridge is when you get a call inviting you to go to Pearson? So it was, it was a little bit more complicated than that. I was doing anthropology and as part of the anthropological study, you have to do a year abroad, a field, a field study. Mm -hmm. And the only way they got me to stay to be, to do my PhD was to say, well, you can do your field study in the Bahamas. Mm -hmm. So I was home in the Bahamas doing my field work. When I get a call from John Fowler, who at the time was the chairman of the United World College's selection committees in NASA. And John was also the first UWC student from the Bahamas. He was, that's exactly right. He was the first UWC student to go to any college from the Bahamas. So John calls me up and he says, you know, I've just got a call from one of my friends and um, Lester Pearson College is looking for an English teacher. Are you interested? And I was like, am I interested? I think so. So I put in a call. I call the college and the person who answers was the person who was actually my house fellow when I was at Pearson, Jean Godin. And I told him I was interested and he said, oh, okay, fine. Um, and he sends me all the application stuff. And I was actually going to be replacing my English teacher the person who had taught me English at Pearson College 15 years before, Theo Dombrowski. And I had had the fortune of having some incredible English teachers. So, wait, well, one second, one you weren't them. actually replacing him. You, was, you were holding his place. I was substituting. Right. right, 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 right. So I was substituting for him. Um, he was going, they were opening a new United World College in Norway. And he was going to be one of the founding faculty there, having spent all his career at another United World College. So he was taking some of the things that they had learned and perfected from Pearson to Norway. And he was going to be there for two years. So they needed somebody to take his classes. So they hired me. And, you know, I was interviewed by over the phone by people that I had, you know, not talked to in 15 years. And I got the job and I get there and I realize that I'm not necessarily teaching Theo's classes because I'm teaching English standard level. There's another person by the name of Jeffrey Tindiebwa from Uganda who is teaching Theo's classes. I'm taking um, over his wife's classes, but I also get to teach anthropology. But one of the things that you have to do at Pearson whether you're a faculty member or a student, is you have to get involved in extracurricular activities. Okay, so here is, here is where 
I get a phone call and um, the phone, the phone call is Philip. They've asked me to run a trauma activity. I have no idea what I'm supposed to do to teach. How am I supposed to teach this thing? I need some guidance on how to put this thing together. Yeah. Because I had no acting experience other than the the stuff that I had done, um, which was mostly reluctant or the ones that I had more fun would, would be the musical based ones, right? Um, you can lead a horse to water and music of the Bahamas. I enjoyed those because there was singing and, and stuff involved, but I had no idea. I didn't know how to teach acting. I didn't know when I was, when I was on stage, I didn't know if I was doing it right or wrong. I didn't know. But I, I think, I think one of the things I said was, you know, more than them. Because you had you had you had said. done those plays, you had been in these plays, you had been in these musicals, you had done a fair amount of theater, and um, these were high school students who had arrived at what grade ten, most of them in some in some countries, and and some of them had gone beyond that. And I basically, I think, I sent you a lot of. Um, scene stuff, monologues, a few plays, and some and some books, yeah, and some exercises, things to 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 get them, you know, exercises and theater games and things to get them um, active or whatever. So I, you basically gave me a plan mm-hmm. of action. You said do some icebreakers, do some exercises, and then I suggest. Then you said I suggest that I, I found out that I was expected to direct a play, and I had never directed before in my life. Philip said, okay, so um, I recommend that you start with The Good Doctor, which is a Neil Simon play, but it is a Neil Simon play that is based on Anton Chekhov's short stories. And so there's a whole set of vignettes that are adaptations of these short stories, and they're hilarious. They are absolutely, they're, they're, they're Russian, they're over the top, and then they have Neil Simon's comic sense added to them and it's just it was great it was a great idea and um it was a really good way to get all of the people in the drama activity involved without having them do anything too strenuous or anything too demanding they each got a small vignette and i was able to work with each little vignette separately and then pull it all together you asked me to do a workshop. Yes, I did. You did a workshop with that group, right? You did a workshop with that group yes, first. Yes, yes. Am I right? You came to visit me and you did a workshop with that group. And um, they were really excited by it. And so by the next year, I'd grown a little confidence. I don't know how I went from the good doctor to the crucible, but I did. I decided I was going to do Arthur Miller next and we were going to do the crucible. And so for whatever reason, I took it on and I realized that that I was learning a lot of stuff and I was developing things. But that year I said, well, you come, come with, come for a week and come while we go on project week and we will rehearse the first act of the crucible and you will do intensive workshops with the students as they rehearse that first act. And then you'll help me develop the second act and um, then we'll finish putting on the play. So that is what we did. And we went to uh, one of the Gulf Islands, one of the Canadian Gulf Islands, Gabriola, where we rehearsed the first act and we um, 
also had a rather dramatic experience <laughs> of her own. <laughs> yes, Philip almost dies, um, but that's another story. <laughs> <laughs> yes, Philip almost dies and Philip totals my car. Um, which is a generous way of referring to the thing that I was driving. Yeah, car, right. Um, <laughs> yeah. And it, the object with no brakes. Right. Um, <laughs> yes. And so, yeah. And, and the thing is, is that people really responded well to the Crucible. And they had said, not, the, not to the Crucible so much, but to the good doctor. They said, oh, this is a very good production. And I thought to myself, I don't know if it's a very good production. It didn't fall down. It didn't fail. It was slick. It ran from beginning to end. Um, it moved well. The students didn't disgrace themselves and they didn't disgrace me. So it was okay. But I wouldn't say it was good. And then we did The Crucible. And The Crucible, I got completely different reactions. It was a big cast. And they did a good job, I have to say. Given, I mean, they they did have an intensive workshop with Philip Burroughs for a whole week. Yes, but, but what happened in that week made some changes to the Dundas, to me. While I was working on that intensive workshop, the president of the college was there. He was, he was a drama bug. He really liked to be involved. He really wanted drama and whatever. And he, he and his wife had... Um, driven one of the buses to uh, the school vans to get everybody up to uh, the ferry in order to go over to Gabriola to where this thing was going to happen. And then he was driving back home. But while he was there, he came to see a couple of the rehearsals. Yes. And uh, he came he, he came to watch you work with the students. Yeah. Yes. And about, yeah, I mean, he just came to watch the students work. I don't think he knew anything about me. I had met him very briefly uh, the year before when you went to um, borrow his van to take me to the airport. And that was about a five-minute meeting. But this time around, he sat in and he watched what was going on. And he took us out to dinner. And he kept grilling Nico about what her plans were. Oh, that's right. That was the second yes. year. And the, and the Dombrowski's were coming Nico back. Was, Nico was right. only supposed to be there for two years. And he was like, you know. My contract yes. is up. Yeah, what do you, what do you plan to do? What are you going to do? What is what is going on? And Nico says, I'm going back home. And it was pretty much, you know, we had a nice dinner. And they went back. And um, he had to come back again when the car flipped over. And I, we needed a ride back into town. <laughs> so um, I'm there. I have another day or two left in my time visiting. And I get a phone call saying that he would like to take me to lunch. And I go to lunch and he invites me to come to Pearson College to introduce the IB Theater Arts program and to teach theater at Pearson College. Not something that Nico was really fond of happening because she wanted no. to go home. Yeah, by that time I had, well, there were a number of things. One of them was I was still writing my, I was still writing my dissertation, my thesis. And I, it was, Pearson College is hard work. So just to let people know, this is Lester B. Pearson College on the west coast of Canada. It's a United World College. It's 200 students um, together in a, in, a, in a hot box kind of thing. And there's 50 faculty. So it's a community of 250 people. It's really intense. People are pushed to their limits there. They do demanding academic work. They do demanding activities, re recreational work. There are all kinds of dramas happening because they're teenagers. There's between 16 and 21. And 
everything that you can imagine happening between 16 and 21 is happening and you're always trying to keep people yes alive. but on top on top and of that sing. on top of that though what what happens is in nico's first two years she is living in an apartment on on the top of the hill away from students students could come and visit her and everything but when i get there she and i are house fellows which means yes, we we move into a house with 41 exactly. students and not only is it pearson college 200 students it's 200 students from 83 different countries so yes. in our house we have 41 students from 30 different countries because every Rome has to have an English speaker, so... Mostly Canadians, because most, yes. the, the highest number of people there are Canadians. It's in Canada, after all. And so the two years that Nico looks to stay at Pearson College turns into five years. Yes. And, you know, the two years were, were intense, you know. And the thing is, is because I was an alumna, because I had been to Pearson, the students gravitated to me. And it was a wonderful experience, but I had had enough. I had spent two years there as a student. That was intense. And having spent two more years there as a faculty member, it was intense. I was tired. I wanted to go home. But Philip was even more tired. He had been working for 17 years at the Dundas, and he was coming to the end of his tether. He had, he had pretty well done everything that he wanted to do. And he was frustrated. There were a lot of things that more that he wanted to do, and his hands were tied. And so he was like, I'm taking a sabbatical. And... He decided he was going to come and establish the theater arts. It was a great opportunity because the other thing was he was actually going to get a salary mm. as opposed to working to make his own money being basically self-employed or doing profit sharing with, with the Dundas. He was going to get a salary mm. and I was going to get a salary. And, and, and at this point, this was the point at which we decided we could get married. It was all things were looking like they would be it, they would be great for him. Well, it was an so... it was an interesting time because we had to divide up. Nicolette was still working on, as she said, she was working on her PhD, and doing that also as a teacher. Now, I taught in the evenings, <laughs> and that was great because Nicolette would go to bed very early. And I would have to make sure that the 41 students in the house were not doing foolishness because all the guys live upstairs, all the girls live downstairs. And you yeah. have to realize we're talking about 16, 17 and 18 year olds. So yep. I was sort of like the person who roamed the campus. Um, one of Nico's students said it's like this liminal spirit walking past. <laughs> in the evening and... they would, but you weren't like an enforcer you were just like hanging out yeah. with them you were you were like you were like just always there for them it wasn't like there were other people who used to wander the campus like the people who had been in the house before us but it was sort of like a military wandering with yeah. sort of like get back to bed kind of thing but you were not like that you were sort of you just you just went and hung out with students and and just kept your finger on the pulse yeah. Of what was going on. Nika would wake up at some ungodly hour in the morning to work on her thesis. Yeah. So five o'clock in I the would, morning. I, I, I would have gone yeah. to bed. I had to teach at I eight. would have gone to bed about four o'clock. <laughs> she would wake up at five o'clock, but I didn't teach until six o'clock in the evening. So we had to work out a situation where the weekends were ours. And we just had this day-to-day -day sort of thing. But what ended up happening was that when I developed my 
theater arts program. Theater arts became something that gets us to a next big point in both of our lives. And that is that I've been spoken to by the president of the college. And he says, there is this festival. In, yes, in one condition. I need you. I need you to do this one thing. Yeah. <laughs> uh, he said, you should really visit the Oregon Shakespeare Festival. And at that time, I knew nothing about the Oregon Shakespeare Festival. And I, Oregon just didn't strike me as a Shakespeare place. But he said, you should really look into it. So I went and I did some research. And so we have this thing called Project Week. And I informed my students that they were all going to do their Project Week in theater. And some of them were really ticked off about that. And I said, we are going to... Because they wanted to go traveling yeah. with their friends, like other people. I did. said, we are going to go to Ashland, Oregon, and we're going to see theater. And you're all going to come, and you all have your journals, and this is a part of the IB, and you have to write about this experience and everything. So reluctantly, they said they would go. But what happened was I had... At, they had no choice. They had no choice, they had no choice right? <laughs> but I had, there were 14... My first year was 14 students. And so the college had these um, uh, vans. These vans. And yeah. um, I was going to take the, the most unruly seven in my van. And Nico was going to drive the others. So we got into these two vans and we drove to the ferry. And then we got over and then we drove 14 hours to Ashland. Yeah, we had to cross the border. So we, we leave, we, we get to Vancouver. We take the ferry to Vancouver. We drive down to the Seattle, to the Washington border. We cross the border and then we drive south through Washington into Oregon to Ashland. And it was like, what, 14 hours? Yeah, it was 14 hours. And we would normally get there at some ungodly hour, like like four o'clock in the morning or something after we had left five o'clock the morning before or something like that. Yeah. But yeah. We, we got these students in and it, we went into this little town and really Ashland is a very small town and they have three, uh, the festival has three theaters and uh, we get there and we get to the first show and the, the, the very first show we all go to see is a Midsummer Night's Dream. And I will never forget by intermission the students just running up to me and saying, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you so much. So we end up... Well, we, none of us, but none of us knew what, no. we were, what we were in for. None of us had any idea. You know, I was sitting there going, okay, I'm preparing myself. Yes, I was an English major. Yes, I studied Shakespeare. Yes, I know this play. But my experience of Shakespeare performances to that date had really consisted of those BBC dramas that we had to watch when we were in high school. And now I know that they are pretty dire. Mm. And, you know, they were people prancing around on a screen with one exception with Derek Jacobi, but people prancing around on a screen reciting Shakespeare. And, and, you know, you have no idea what's going on. And this was completely different. It starts off with this moon mm. being let down from the ceiling and this black woman sitting in this moon with all her hair out. And then it goes from there to these people, fairies, 
who are dressed in Edwardian costumes swinging out from these doors that are like 20 feet up Mid-air. in the air. <laughs> but the, the, the thing about it is that the students, we, you know, I, I, I find out what's playing. I book all the, all the seats and stuff and we get there and we see six shows in three days. And then we get back and we drive back. And the school, the students were just talking this up. I mean, people were jealous. They were like, whatever. But the thing that happens is we look at this town and Nico says, you know, the length of this town is like if you went from Elizabeth Avenue to the British Colonial. The Hilton. That's about the length yep. of the entire town. And there are these three theaters and they do this festival. Shouldn't we be able to do something like this at home? Yeah. And so that's the first that's the first um, germ of an idea for Shakespeare in Paradise. You're listening to Kachika, a podcast that takes you behind the scenes at the Dundas Center for the Performing Arts. We go back the second year. This time I have 17 students and we do it all over again. Same reaction. Same, same, same thing. Same buzz. Everybody's, everybody's whatever. Amazing. So we, we're done with that. But the next year, we decide the students is not, we're getting ready to leave. We're, we're leaving Pearson. We are actually going, we're, we're driving away. And a part of our drive back to, to Florida to put the car on the boat and get back to Nassau was to visit. Yes. By the way, Philip and I, Philip and I drove his car from Miami to Seattle and then to, to Victoria. And we drove the car back to Miami. We decided that this is going to be the beginning of our trip, or this is going to be a part of our trip to, to uh, heading back home. And David joins us and we go to the, the Oregon Shakespeare Festival once again. So this is the third time, but we've we've yep. done this all in, all within being in the area, but then there's a fourth year, and we actually yes. decide to fly from Nassau to go to Oregon because that's how good the festival is. And this time, yeah, it was like a drug. Yes. By that time, we were addicted to the Oregon Shakespeare Festival. We couldn't afford to continue to be addicted after that because it's it, it's costly to get yes. to Oregon. But, but this time, we also we also took Keva with us, Keva Bethel. Yeah, my mother. And yeah, so, yeah. So it was. Yeah, it was just. You see, because I have, I have, I, I had been going to New York every year and New York theater ever since I studied in New York and everything. And you know, this was like, I, this was a substitute for that because it was. I can go there, and the theater was as good or better in some circumstances. Yeah, it was. In some cases, it was more exciting because it was the financial investment was different. So in Broadway, it's a business and people and, and what gets to Broadway and what gets on stage is stuff that has been almost, I don't know, pasteurized. I, that, that's not the best way to look at it because there are some amazing things that hit Broadway. But a lot of times you don't really get the stuff that's taking risks. But in Oregon, there was a whole range of stuff. There's, there's all the arcane. It's from the arcane to the super popular. There was a really cool... Um, programming that they did they would be developing african-american plays and i remember seeing some of um was it Lynn Nottage's early stuff 
and August Wilson had plays that pre that premiered there. And then there would be plays that premiered in Oregon Shakespeare Festival that then would be picked up and taken to Broadway. And you'd see them there first. Um, yeah, and, and, and the price of the plays yeah. was, com what, you know, once you got to Oregon, you could see as many as possible. And so I we were thinking, okay, so if we can do this in the Bahamas, because the other thing that blew my mind was you have this teeny weeny, you have this teeny weeny town, and I don't know what it was doing in or in Oregon before they developed the Shakespeare Festival, but the Shakespeare Festival runs from February to November, and it is the economic engine of this town, and that was the other thing I thought. You know, there must we have millions of tourists in Nassau. There must be some way to make this sustainable in the Bahamas. There must be some way to, to, to shift the, the focus of tourism from sun, sand, sea, gambling, and cruise ships to something with a little bit more heft and a little bit more weight and that has more longevity and that can continue to support people year in, year out. That was truly the inspiration. We, we've always credited, and the, and the people at Oregon Shakespeare Festival to this day know that when we were there, Libby Apple was the artistic director, and her yep. son is somebody that Nico and Irwin everybody Apple, else yeah, has met, we met uh, during the Shakespeare. Through the Shakespeare Theater right. Association. Yes. So, and Libby was also a director at the time, and she did, I think she did The Tempest, I believe. And yeah, um, so, yeah, so it was um, it was really the the inspiration. But we get back and the very first thing that has to happen, because in the conversation we had with David last week, we talked about the whole firing of the management committee and the forming of Ring Play Productions. And we get back and the very first thing after we return from Pearson College is to fully establish Ring Play Productions as a theater company. And that is done. And the very first production, as we talked about last week, was Macbeth. But once that's done, the idea of putting Shakespeare and Paradise together is a, a big job. And um, I, I, I think I can fairly say that not even all of the members of Ring Play were as committed on board, <laughs> we're, we're, as, we're as on board about the idea of Shakespeare in Paradise. I think Nico, myself, and Reds were the three people who were very, very sure about it. And a couple other people were reluctant, and a couple other people were like, eh, you really think this can happen? But as we started to raise the funds and as we started to work on it, there were all hands on deck. Right, but it took us a while to get there, right? So we started off with, um, to go back to 2001, when we get back, we get back in 2000. And 2001, we put on Macbeth. And this is the first time that any of us had had actually mounted and produced a Shakespeare play. So I guess I guess the idea was, first of all, let's see, let's see if we can do Shakespeare, because there's no sense in doing a Shakespeare festival if we can't do a Shakespeare play. So we picked Macbeth. And we, we talked a little bit about it with David, about how that worked. And that actually went off really well. And we found um, that it resonated with the students 
And so we decided that we would then use Wrinkly to mount a play a year and develop to develop or redevelop an audience because what had happened with the canceling of the season was that within a few years, this is what four or five years later, the audience for theater is is dispersed. It's not coming to the Dundas anymore. It's following all these other things. So we wanted to re establish a, an appetite for theater and an appetite for Bahamian theater. So Wrinkley began to work its way through the canon of Bahamian plays. And we continued up until um, 2006. So at this time too, I became director of culture. And this kind of put a pause on my active involvement in theater because I felt that it would be a conflict of interest for me to be working obviously with theater and to be director of culture. So, but it didn't stop me from working with Wrinkley and from doing things independently. But in 2006, we went to Carafesta. So basically what had happened was in 2006, the government of the time under Perry Christie had decided that it was time for the Bahamas to host the Caribbean Festival of Arts. And in order for the Bahamas to put in a bid to host the Caribbean Festival of Arts, the Bahamas had to attend a Carafesta. And in 2006, the Carafesta was being held in Trinidad and Tobago. So they had asked for a good-sized contingent to be put together to go to Trinidad to show the Caribbean that the Bahamas was ready and able to host Carafesta. And as director of culture, it was my job to put that together. So I had to... Um, bite the bullet and convince the minister at the time that the appropriate person, the, the first minister I had to convince was um, Minister Devil Wisdom. But then partway through this, the minister that I had to convince was the prime minister himself because culture had been transferred into the office of the prime minister, that the person who was best suited to be the artistic director of the Carafista contingent was Philip Burroughs. And, you know, I thought, hard about that because I was like I don't want it to be I don't want it to seem like nepotism but really Philip was the person who had the the experience and the ability to do this um so Philip was was the artistic director and he put he helped us put together the contingent that went to Trinidad and we took Winston Saunders you can lead a horse to water there so this is a long way of saying that we were experienced. We had got experience in dealing with big festivals, with pulling together what needed to be put together for festivals and also the logistics of carrying things across the seas to attend a festival. Because it wasn't just people that went to Trinidad. We also took an exhibition and we also took um, Junkanoo Group. We took all kinds of things. So between us, I was I was the producer of this whole to-do. Philip was the director of the whole to-do. So we had some experience. And we repeated it again in 2008. Yes. And then in, for Guyana, right after the Bahamas had dropped the ball with hosting, we were supposed to host the 2008 Cara Festa. We had put in a bid in 2004. Um, Cara Clom had said, we don't, it, it'll be our first time, so we don't want you to do it in 2006. Go to Trinidad, observe and then you'll do it in 2008. But there was a change of government and the new administration did not feel confident that they could deliver it. So we canceled 2008 and we said, okay, we'll host in 2010. Um, which again, very kind. was 
Just very Sorry? kind to say they didn't feel confident that we could host it. Well, whatever. They didn't care. There was, there they was didn't a give lot. a crap. I, so I, I have mixed feelings about that because the Minister of Culture at the time, Charles Maynard, was very, very much in support yes, of it. Yes, but the so, Minister of Culture at the time, we're not going to get into a thing about this, but the Minister of Culture at the time had to answer to the Prime Minister and the Prime Minister at the time really didn't to, care. Yeah, he also had to answer to the, yeah, he also had to answer to his, he was only a Minister of State. He wasn't a full right. Minister at the time. So he also had to answer to his substantive Minister, who was the Minister of Education. But whatever. So yes, there was a general feeling in Cabinet that it wasn't something that was worth being invested in. Um, so we again dropped the ball and we were going to host in 2010 and we had begun the process of planning on the ground for 2010 when it was decided that the Bahamas was not going to host Carafesta again. And by that time, I had had enough of working for government as I had before, actually, as I had had 20 years before. So I returned to the, the College of the Bahamas at the time. But I was afraid. One of the things that was great about working for government was that I wasn't bored. There was always something to keep me busy. And I was concerned that I would be bored once I left government because I would no longer, A, have battles to fight and B, have big projects to deliver. So I decided now would be the time for us to embark on Shakespeare in Paradise because we had built up, I had built up connections throughout the Caribbean and we had both got a reputation now in the Caribbean. So it wasn't like we were starting from nothing. We wanted to create an international festival from the very beginning. And we called upon the people that we had seen and talked to and made connections with in both Trinidad and in Guyana. And we were able to pull off the first Shakespeare in Paradise with an international contingent as well as our local Shakespeare and other and, and behavior. Yes, because we, we actually were able to bring in Ken Cosby, who was very well known. I had met Ken from 1981 when I went to Carafester in Barbados. And um, Ken had we brought in Ken had done some work with, with um, Derek, and my brother Derek yes. knew him well. And then we also brought in Kim Brockington, who was a classmate of mine at the American Academy of Dramatic Arts and a friend of mine ever since. And she came in that first year. Uh, and Henry Mutu. Yeah, we brought in Henry Mutu from Cayman and he brought in a two-man play from Cayman. So we had a full, a full um, international and local festival in 2009. And as you said, Philip, you and I were sure we could do it. And Reds, who had worked on the Quincentennial. So the, the three of us had experience dealing with big things with lots of moving parts. And Cookie as well. I don't think Cookie was against no, doing it. No, no, I don't it. think Cookie anybody was... was against doing it. I just think that um, people weren't sure. People weren't. There was a concern. Yeah. Like, are you sure that we could do this? Are we biting, biting off more than right. we can chew? And financially, absolutely, we were biting off more than yeah. we can chew. Ringplay, I mean, Ringplay Productions had some money. Ringplay Productions floated Shakespeare in Paradise for the first five mm -hmm. years. And I remember a meeting at three years in when the financial controller at the time, who was Carrie Collins, said, you know, what we're doing is very worthwhile. And I love what we're doing. And I think it's great. But we have to make more mm -hmm. money because every year we lose a thousand dollars. And that's not a lot of money to lose. 
But she said, it's finite. The pot is finite. And if we keep losing $1,000, we're going to end up bankrupt. So we have to find some way of making this make money. And we did. By the fifth year, we were able to, the fifth year, definitely, we made a profit. That was, and and by the fourth year, I think we were breaking even. But in our second year, the success of the first year kind of went to our heads. And we, we definitely bit off more than we could chew. We had eight plays and we brought in a whole bunch of people and we went into a very deep yeah. hole afterwards. But so, I mean, here we are. We've done... What? This is our 12th year. Right. You Normally, you got to get past three. And if you yeah. get past three, then you're, you're really uh, a festival because, <laughs> you know, some people, some a lot of these things start, you know, like award shows around here. They have one year or they have two years and then all of a sudden you don't hear from them anymore or, you know, whatever. So, the, you know, we've, we've been able to do it. We're trying to figure out what it will be this year with the pandemic and everything going on we have some ideas yeah yeah yeah, yeah. There, there will be changes there'll be changes for this year because of social distancing and not so much necessarily the social distancing in october but the rehearsal yeah. period and the preparation period for shakespeare and paradise is is a three-month period and so we are still not back to which normal. actually the should theater be, is still not able which to actually open. should begin about now rehearsals yes, normally yes. begin and in so, july that's right. So we're not going to be able to do what we normally do for Shakespeare and Paradise um, 2020. But we will, there will be a festival. There, there will be no hiatus. There will be a festival. It may not look the same. I think we might be able to deliver on some of our other ideas because Shakespeare and Paradise had a very lofty and complicated mission. And the mission is education and exposure, tourism, creating a name for tourism for the Bahamas other than just sun, sand, and sea, development of the theater industry, economic opportunities. And we've done better in some areas than others. The education and exposure has been our great success, I think. And I think that we have begun to give people opportunities. We've definitely given Bahamian actors the opportunity to expand their experience and their their repertoires and to build their portfolio. Visual artists. And we and we've worked closely with visual artists with regard to our produ- our posters and so on. That's where we are today. I mean, there's a lot there's a lot of other things that you know we could talk about. I mean, you have there are other plays that you have written that we haven't uh, really touched on. There's a play that you've written that's been sitting there that you've you'd hoped to become a musical at one point during the quintennial, <laughs> yes. and nobody's ever touched it or looked at it, but. Outside yes, of outside true. of um, Power Cut, you did the Children's Teeth, which was one of the pieces that was both performed at the Dundas and at Carafesta in Guyana. And yes. um, a lot of people don't know that you actually was the scriptwriter for the original Disney Things. I was, and um, it was, was created by Derek and Kayla, but the actual script. Um, was written by yourself and um there have been other things that you've been known more small acts yeah small acts there are other things that you've been known more as a writer for but in the recent in recent years um your big you know you've done these other directing things but i would i would guess that your big directing debut was for colored girls yes for colored girls in 2014 yeah and and then yeah. that moved you into directing more so than it had been 
at any other time before because you know you've done then you know Pat Ramming's work and you've done the uh, two short tales and you you know so it's it's moved you from being more comfortable and taking on a role as a director we go back to Macbeth where you were the director for that I mean there was a series of kind of different people working on different aspects of it but you were the main director for that production yeah I think I think for me um directing it's very hard to direct um in the shadow of Philip Burroughs because you you had such a reputation you had such an ex, uh you had such experience such a track record with the season that anybody who came up under you at the season was really daunted. And there are still some people who are daunted by the idea of directing, of stepping into those shoes. I was able to do it at Pearson because nobody knew who Philip Burroughs was until you got there. And then I stopped directing and I started producing. Um, I remember when I did Macbeth in 2001. Um, and I was able to work with many of the other actors, the less experienced actors, but I had, I was terrified. I did not want to work with David and Carrie. I did not want to have to deal with their, their Macbeth and Lady Macbeth scenes. And I remember asking you to work with them because I said, I don't think, I don't feel confident giving them direction. And I don't think that David and Carrie are going to take direction from me because they are way more <laughs> accomplished as actors than I am. And I would not know how to how to give them any kind of um, suggestions. So I remember that you worked with them. Mm -hmm. So coming down to for colored girls who have considered suicide when the rainbow is enough, which I think was probably my next. I did work with Speak the Speech, which is a, which was a different kind of thing, but it did give me the ability to to pull things out of people speak the speech was not a drama it was it was a presentation um but i was able to work with students we got a point where we could affect the audience so i learned how to get something out of people so that we could touch the audience but for colored girls who had considered suicide when the rainbow was enough was my first uh dramatic directorial thing since the crucibles mm -hmm. And it was frightening because I was working at that time with Cookie and Cookie was probably the most experienced actor in the bunch. And I was terrified. And the other person I was working with was Teresa Moxie, who also had been acting for a lot longer than I had been anywhere near the stage. So I was like, uh, let's see what we can do. And it it came together really well. I We created... Uh, cohesion in that group and we got some performances out of that group that were that 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 had the effects that I wanted to have and then after that it was I was able to do two um new plays Pat Ramming's new play and then Travis Cartwright Carol's um the melancholy of Susanna right of course you did uh, small acts which was which you wrote and directed Right. I, I directed two of my plays, which is something that I did not want to do, but I directed Small Acts and I directed Power Cut again. And Power Cut was actually fun. Mm -hmm. The thing that I think that I have enjoyed the most in, in the past years is my co-directing work with Renee Caesar on Ian Strawn's Diary of Souls earlier in February mm -hmm. this year. You know, Philip, I don't think we had a kachika moment in this. 
Well, is there one? Yes, there is one. And I will share it now. Go ahead. So one of the plays that I was in, which we didn't talk about, was Winston Saunders, You Can Lead a Horse to Water. Mm -hmm. And the the pinnacle of my career was when we took that play to Edinburgh Festival. (laughs) And the Edinburgh Festival Fringe, You Can Lead a Horse to Water, debuted at 10.30 in the night in this place i can't remember chaplaincy center the chaplaincy center and we performed for a week or it seemed like or a weekend i can't remember how long it was and then the reviews came out the reviews of the whole of the whole festival in the fringe came out and you can lead a horse to water was reviewed and the review was glowing and it was like if you go to see anything in the edinburgh festival fringe which is hundreds of plays you must go to see the bahamas contingents you can lead a horse to water by winston v saunders um it is blah 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 you know adjectives up the wazoo and so everybody sees this the review and we're like oh my god our nanny does not have any smell and we get there and I think we had mentioned with, I don't know if, if this made it into the cut, but I know when we were talking to Gregory, we were talking about how we did three different plays. And two of them were in the chaplaincy center. And the chaplaincy center gave you basic, basic stuff. And you had platforms that you could use for your sets. And so what we did was for, you can lead a horse to water, we would turn the platforms, they were triangular platforms. So we turned the platforms so that the base of the triangle was facing the audience because we had a large cast and we wanted to make sure that everybody could stand on the platforms. But when they did Ian Strawn's No Seeds in Babylon, they would set it up with the pointed ends of the triangles facing the audience. And, you know, everybody was so taken by this glowing review for You Can Lead a Horse to Water that people went in we had like what 15 minutes 20 minutes to set up the stage for the people who had been there the last 15 minutes right a 15 minute turnover so we had the same guys who would set up every night come in and set up the stage for the play and this time i guess everybody was just so um i don't know so glowing that nobody really noticed that they had set the platforms up the wrong way around, that they had set them up for no seeds in Babylon rather than um, you can lead a horse to water. The lights go down and everybody has to come on stage in the dark going as charged and find your way to your platform in the dark. And nobody can see that these platforms are wrong, but everybody can feel that something is off. And so we're all crowded in the weirdest places on these platforms, trying to get to the spaces that we were supposed to stand on. I remember thinking, I can't get up on this platform. I'm one foot off, one foot on. And the play just went downhill from there. We started, we go through, there are major, major, um, I don't even know, cock-ups throughout the whole play. And I couldn't see anything because I was without my glasses. But my brother, who was on stage, said he looked up at the at the top, at the back of the theater. And there's Philip running lights. And he's either got his hands in the air or his head in his hands because we were that bad. So we get off stage at the end. And somebody, I think it was Vivica, said, quick, let's get out of here before Philip. And she's running out of the theater and she opens the door. And who should we see on the other side of the door but Philip? 
And this is the Kachika moment. Philip says, I've directed this play in Nassau. I have directed this play in Freeport. I've directed this play in San Francisco. And never in all the time that I have been directing this play have I seen so much fuckery as I saw on that stage tonight. And with that, he turned away and walked out into the freezing Edinburgh night. That is my Kachika moment of my career. And on that note, <laughs> well, I would say one thing. Um, Pearson College, that was 23 years ago. That also coincides with the fact that for those people listening on Sunday to the first airing of this episode, <laughs> yesterday would have been our 23rd wedding anniversary. So happy anniversary. Thank you. <laughs> and there you have it. You've been listening to Kachika a podcast that takes you behind the scenes of the Dundas Center for the Performing Arts, a production of Ringplay Productions. This has been a conversation with Philip A. Burroughs and Nicolette Bethel. <laughs>